Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, would you join me in turning them to Ephesians chapter 4? It's good to connect with you in this way. Um, We've been just really fortunate and blessed to be able to do these uh, digital services as we navigate this season together and um, just glad to be able to join you in trusting the Lord with uh, the road ahead as we now stare into a fall season with Labor Day just two weeks away and not really knowing exactly what's on the other side of that in a lot of capacities, but knowing uh, that he is firmly in control and that we can trust in him together. So uh, we are now in the second week of what is going to be, uh, Lord willing, a four-week series on the vision of the church entitled Reset. And just um, having the kind of big overarching aim to drive home this point that in a time of cultural upheaval uh, in a a lot of ways, uh, we as a church are not kind of sitting back, just kind of waiting passively to restart, but that we are actively working to reset, to reset our perspective, to reaffirm our purpose so that we as a church can kind of seize uh, the opportunity that I think God has placed before us to shine the light of Christ in a time that the church has not been able to do in a very long time. And and this is why we began uh, last week with just the um, simple but foundational question, hey, who are we? Who are we? The short answer to that is that we're the people of God. We are the church. The, uh, the, the slightly longer answer to that comes right out of Ephesians 4, chapters, uh, chapter 4, verses 3 through 6, where we saw last week that we are one body formed by one spirit who have one hope in one Lord with one faith united by one baptism under one God and Father of all. That this church, Grace Church, this is what binds us together. Not a certain social belief, or political belief, or moral belief, or anything else aside from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And and with that kind of reaffirmed, now we can kind of reset in asking the question of, okay, what are we supposed to be doing here? And that's the goal of where we're going today. Since we are one body formed by one spirit who have one hope and one Lord to the glory of God, what then shall we do, church? Well, in this theme of reset, you know, I've said I'm not just asking you guys to do it, but it's something that I personally have been doing it individually and with our family and, and certainly with uh, the church and the, and the leadership of this church is to kind of take a step back over every aspect of our ministry, including the way we communicate what our vision is that informs every area of our ministry. And so I want to be clear here um, that the vision of Grace Church has never changed in the last 75 years. That it has always been, since it was planted in 1946, a faithful gospel ministry in northern New Jersey that has sought to make disciples not only in Ridgewood and in the surrounding towns, but to the ends of the earth through a Um, very uh, clear and passionate view of missions. But as times change over the last 75 years through the generations and the decades, the way to communicate that vision has always kind of been shifting and changing. One gospel, one God, one vision, but a way we're going to communicate that and revolve our ministry around it is constantly shifting. 
right? Only the gospel is the gospel. But, but a vision statement, which is not the gospel, but is meant to illuminate and clearly point people to have a clear understanding of what we ought to be doing right now as the church. And so our vision statement at Grace since um, 2014, I believe, has been glorifying God by making disciples through Christ-centered worship, community, service, and mission. And, and, and so we and in no way are moving away from that or we think that that was wrong or ill-informed. That is still very much our pathway. Those four pillars are still very much uh, the, the pillars through which we view and plan ministry and discipleship here. But one thing that I have found in all the noise of, of, of what our current day is, all the clutter, all the um, just chaos, I think it's more vital than, than it ever has been in, in, in my lifetime and certainly in my time in ministry to have a statement that is simple, that can simply communicate and kind of cut through all the chaos and noise. And, and, and I've said before, listen, the most important thing about your life is not knowing the vision statement of your church. But, but I, I think we were a little complex in, in a certain way that, that just the average person who's coming in, grabbing hold of, hey, what are we supposed to be doing here? Um, let's go. That it, it just got kind of confusing in their minds. And so when we talk about reset, part of this reset is to clarify, I hope, and strengthen built upon by simplifying, hey, what are we trying to do here in a line? So, so here, as we now venture into this new season of ministry, here is the vision I want to cast out. That we at Grace Church are glorifying God by making disciples who know Jesus and make him known. I want that to be the simple, but I hope to be profound answer for why we exist and what we do at Grace. Again, whether you've been a believer for a long time, or you just currently now are a new Christian, or you are still in that phase of trying to wrestle through some of these foundational doctrines, that you understand and know that at church, at Grace Church, that I am being equipped to know Jesus and make him known, to play a part in that story, for that to be the lens through which we understand why we do what we do, and in some cases, what we don't do. And that I think it's important as we, again, head into, further into this year, but into what I think is going to be a cultural, a season of cultural upheaval. I'm not an alarmist. I'm not trying to like build drama here or, or, or uh, you know, say things just to try and stir things up. But I, I mean, we are in a wild time. And I think it's going to be important more now than ever to strengthen, clarify, bolster, and simplify. What are we doing as a church? What's our job here? Why do we exist? We want to make disciples who know Jesus and make him known. So we're going to unpack that statement over the next three weeks. Um, this morning, we're going to just try to nail down and understand what's it mean to know Jesus. When I say know Jesus, what's underneath that? What's, what, 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 what's that mean? That's where we're going to go, and we're going to get directly out of Ephesians chapter 4. Follow along as we read verses 11 through 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, 
to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head and to Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Grace Church, we glorify God by making disciples who know Jesus. And so from this passage, we're going to lay out four, uh, what I would just call missional convictions for the church to know Jesus. And again, specifically for Grace Church. If we're talking about disciples who know Jesus, what's that mean? Number one, disciples who are Christ-centered. First, um, in, in these verses, Paul kind of clarifies the point that when he talks about the unity of the church, which he just spoke about earlier in Ephesians 4, the unity of the church does not mean uniformity. Meaning that to say the church is unified is not to say that you just have the same types of people doing the same types of things, all the same types and, and same kind of way. But rather, he's saying that everyone in the church If you are in the church, you are essential to the work of making disciples who know Jesus. This is not the work of a few. This is the work of the whole body. You know, there's been so much um, verbiage that has kind of come to the forefront of 2020. And probably near the top, if not the top of that list, is that word essential. You know, the, the essential workers, it's, it's, the, it's the subset of the economy that, that had to keep working when everything else was shut down. And so, and so that's what kind of, it was like the dividing line of our country. You had essential and non-essential in all these different ways. Well, Paul is saying that in the church, everybody is essential. And the makeup of the church is not a select few group of leaders who are gifted and they do the ministry And then everybody else comes, and they consume the ministry, and that's just how church works. It's not the the, the design of God in the Bible. That is the design of many churches in our country, where you have a few kind of up on the pedestal, and you have kind of the masses coming, and you're not really sure, are they worshiping their leaders, or are they worshiping the God that their leaders ought to be preaching about? But the church as God designed it, Right here in Ephesians 4, it's a monumental passage. He says it is leaders who have a gifting primarily to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And the saints meaning the members of the church. So the leaders are gifted to equip members who are gifted to carry it out. Well, you say, to carry out what? What is the fruit that comes of the work of the ministry? What is the work of the ministry? Verse 12 again, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We see it there. We see that language, the knowledge of the Son of God. 
This is the fruit that comes from the work of the ministry, to know Jesus. And you see how the word kind of knowledge is deployed there. What, 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 what does it mean there? If we say we want to make disciples who know Jesus, what does it mean to know Jesus? Here's, here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't just mean knowledge in, in regards to mental ascent of, um, of information. Of, of knowing the basic facts about Jesus and who he is and, and, and knowing about what he has done and knowing about Christmas and knowing about Easter and knowing about all these different things. It's not less than that. It includes that, but it's far more. Knowledge, as Paul talks about it, is a knowledge of our hearts being captured by the love of God that he has for us through Christ. It means knowing in your soul, that when he looks at you, when God looks at you, he doesn't see all your failures. He doesn't see your checkered past. He doesn't see you as just a disappointment that he has to put up with. Rather, that he looks at you right now, who you are today, and he sees all the righteousness of Jesus. And he loves you like he loves his only son. This is the fruit of putting your uh, faith in Jesus Christ, of being united with him, that when he then looks at you, he sees and loves you like he sees and loves Jesus. And that love, when understood, when we're captured by it, when our affections are stirred for it, it then motivates us to orient our lives toward Him and and then to make Him, make Jesus Christ the center of all that we do and all who we are. So um, I I have a graphic that's always just stuck well with me that I think helps to just put this um, and illuminates this truth in the lives of believers that I um, first learned from my dad. I'm not sure where he got it from. But imagine your life from as a, uh, as a pizza pie. And your life has all these different slices. We'll have a graphic up on the screen. You know, you, you got your work slice. You got your social life slice. You have your family slice, your friends slice, your money slice. And then you got kind of like your, your Jesus slice, right? Your, your spiritual life. And all those slices are next to each other, but they're ultimately disconnected. And how you view one doesn't necessarily inform how you view another. Everything's kind of compartmentalized. But a growing disciple of Jesus Christ is going to pursue a life where Christ becomes the center of the pizza pie. So that he speaks into and shapes every aspect of it. So that any slice you take out of that pie, it starts with Jesus Christ. And you now view it through the lens of who he is and what he has done. So so your marriage, you view it through the lens of how does the gospel of Jesus Christ inform and shape the way I live out my marriage? Or your relationship with your siblings or your friends. What you do with your money what you do with your downtime when no one's looking, that anything you pull out of your life, when Christ is the center of that, it's going to be pulled out and it's going to begin to kind of cast it out and seen through the lens of Jesus Christ. 
that this is what reflects a disciple of Christ and, and, and also a church that is full of disciples. That when we think about our programs at Grace and our budget and our preaching ministry and our decisions to, um, to serve on certain serving teams or join groups or support missions, that everything we do as the body of Christ is seen through the gospel, not disconnected from one another. And, and now, okay, just let's be honest, is our pursuit of that perfectly, either individually or as a church? Oh my gosh, no. Right? I've said uh, a couple times, I think in the last couple months, that every Christian is a struggling Christian. That, that that pursuit is messy. It's two steps forward, one step back until God calls us home, that we are always battling the sin that remains. But even still, there is a love for God and a knowledge of Him that is so deeply rooted that is going to put us on a path of pursuing and orienting our lives around Jesus Christ. And this is the common pursuit that we are on to make disciples who truly know Jesus, which is to say to be equipped and to equip others in living Christ-centered lives. That's number one. Number two, what's it look like to know Jesus? Making disciples who discern truth. Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. You know, it's interesting Paul invokes children in this verse. And, and I'll be honest, even, even, even before I had children, I probably had some kind of knowledge that children are, are gullible. They, they can be kind of easily tricked. But now that I'm in a season of life where I have four young children in my home, I am even more stunned and surprised how easy it is to get them to believe whatever you want them to believe. And it's kind of dangerous but, I mean, really, in those early kind of formative years, like, whatever you say, often, like, it's taken as gospel. It's taken as truth. Let me give you an example. My son, who turned six this week, the boy's a Jets fan. I did that to him, right? And at some point, he'll figure it out that that is quite possibly the worst team to root for. And hopefully, he will not resent me forever. But, but applying that to, to more serious manners, like, like our worldview, the way we view people, the way we view God, the way we view ourselves, the, the way we view the, the foundational problems in the world around us, and, and, um, and the reason why sickness and death occurs, and well, what's the solution for it? When you talk about those things, teaching truth, and not only truth, but how to discern truth from falsehood, I mean, that's kind of it, man. Like, that is a monumental task. Including in the lives of children, but not exclusively limited to children. But, I mean, hear me, we, we very much take that seriously as a church, to have a passionate platform to teach the children of Grace Church. When we talk about making disciples, we're not just thinking about outside these walls. We're thinking primarily and, first of all, within these walls of one another, especially the vast amount of children amongst us. So I would so value and appreciate Megan's commitment and passion to teaching and conveying the gospel in a way they can understand the, the using a curriculum called the Gospel Project 
to teach and train and equip kids the foundation of truth. But it doesn't stop just with children. It's very much the case of adults. And if we admit it, and from what we even see and experience ourselves, adults are even far more gullible than we often realize. And people who are not rooted in God's truth are susceptible to false teaching like canoes caught in a hurricane. And the most threatening false teaching uh, across church history is the teaching that often seems closest to the real truth, but is just a degree off. You know, these, these claims that, that might contain a semblance of truth, but, but then goes astray in a really dangerous way. That's why it's the most dangerous teachings are like the prosperity gospel or the social gospel, which are relatively modern and still very much an impact today. Or you can go back to the early church when they had Gnosticism, which we will actually interact with a lot in our study of First John this fall. Or we can get very uncomfortable and very current where... It's more ideological and political passions that become synonymous and then often supersede gospel truth. And I'm not just talking outside the church. I'm talking the kind of lines that we might hear or see on social media that says, hey, you can't possibly be a Christian and vote for blank. It's especially interesting when both sides are saying the exact same thing. And we are in a concerning time where more than I think ever in history, because of just the vast speed of technology and accessibility of it, a time of um, fake news and conspiracy theories. Again, church, I'm not just talking about those in the world. I'm talking those who very much would say they claim Jesus Christ is Lord. But people who take current events and go down really deep and often dark rabbit holes of these conspiracy theories, and then they find it in the book of Revelation somehow, and they connect the two, and and people who find themselves just on social media all day, sharing, proclaiming, researching, digging, claiming to unveil these deeply covered conspiracies. And all the while, and we see it happening before our eyes, It's men and women being tossed around by the waves. Canoes in a hurricane. This way, that way, up, down. Getting further and further from shore where the gospel is now only a speck on the horizon in their worldview. This is the battle that many are up against. This is what causing is is causing so much infighting amongst believers and churches. And and honestly, I, I think this has been an issue for you know years now and increasingly so, but in for some reason since March, and I can't claim to connect all these dots, but it feels like it's gotten borderline insurmountable. But the reality is, is that whatever you put the most time into, the most, the, 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 whatever you put the most attention on, typically is what you will believe to be the truth. And, and in our age, he, he, here's where a lot of kind of 
uh, a, a typical week might look like for many, even believers, where they might have some worship and study habits in the Word, in community, maybe two to three hours a week. I'm talking even like pre-COVID. I mean, now it might even be um, a, a little bit less than that. But, but a gathering where you're hearing the word preached, maybe a small group where you're having to study, maybe some personal time where you're engaging in um, some good kind of gospel-centered books or Bible studies, maybe two, three hours a week. Whereas the latest studies say that the average person um, between podcasts, radio shows, television, social media, video games, and all other streaming entertainment consumes about 90 hours a week. So let me put this in perspective. If our, um, if our entire media consumption was a football field, a 100-yard football field, the average Christian um, would have their, their media consumption um, would, would have their, their Christian worship and study end at the two-yard line with the rest of the field being filled with other worldviews constantly pumped in. How do we combat that? It feels insurmountable. I can tell you, that it just feels like um, so daunting. Well, we remember what Paul says in Philippians. Whatever is true, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard, practice these things. Whatever you think about, whatever you put your most primary energy and thoughts upon is what you will believe to be true regardless of what it is. So the church that prioritizes sound teaching and sound doctrine will, by God's grace, equip its people to maintain their foundation in Jesus Christ who can stand firm against the onslaught of false teaching that swirls around us at all times. Disciples discern truth. Number three, what's it mean to know Jesus it means disciples who speak truth in love. Verse 15, rather, speaking truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. This, in many ways, is the, is the key verse for Ephesians chapter 4. It's the key kind of actionable verse for the church, speaking truth in love. It's that kind of linchpin phrase that holds all this together because it gives that center action point. But before we even break that down, we need to recognize something that is true about the New Testament. Paul and the other writers in the New Testament as well, is that there is a distinction between how the church ought to relate with one another and the outside world. Because in one very real sense, Christians are called to love and serve and care for all people, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. That the, the one person asked Jesus, hey, well, who is your neighbor? And Jesus basically said through the parable of the Good Samaritan, anybody you come across. And so that's true. But in another sense, alongside that, the relationships with other believers, and specifically those, those Christians whom you are covenanted with together in the same church, we are called to build up and care for like they are family. 
Because back to last week, that's what we are. We are family. We are one body with one God and Father of all, making us all brothers and sisters in Christ. And there's a sense where there should be a special attention, a special love and desire to build this family up. That might not be true for the world. Paul displays this in 1 Corinthians 5 when, uh, if you you know that passage, there was a man in the church in Corinth who was openly having an affair in the church and was even boasting about it. And the church leaders were doing nothing about it. They even themselves were being a little arrogant about it. And Paul just says to them, what are you doing? If you let someone in the church do this, the whole church will suffer. And he says, remove that man, not only in hopes that he will repent, but that the church will not be divided by him. And then he says this, it's really important. He says, we have no place to judge the world for sin. But isn't it those inside we are called to judge? To hold accountable? To love one another in the church enough to not allow them to destroy themselves and bring down others in the process? And so there very much is a distinction between we, the way that we relate to one another in the church and the, and the way we relate to the so-called world, those outside the church. And this is why we promote and care about church membership at Grace Church, right? I mean, membership is, is not just important for voting matters, like, okay, well, who should the elders be and, and what should the budget be and, and have our theological convictions in the bylaws. I mean, it's not less than that. That's really important. But church membership at its fullest, is so much more. That membership is vital because of the membership covenant that we sign that are like vows. It's like vows from elders to members that we can affirm your salvation as far as we can tell and know your understanding and living out, that we affirm that you, you are in the body of Christ. But then also it's members covenanting to one another to believe in the same things about God and then commit to build one another up and to desire to have the kind of accountability of, that, that people have who truly love and care for one another. So membership is a vital piece of healthy discipleship in the church. It, it shows that you know Jesus in the way that God intended you to, that he never, ever saves you to be alone but always to be part of a family. And so to be in a church, but to not care about membership is like a person being in a relationship but never having to care or think about marriage. Marriage is kind of a legal thing. It's more for tax purposes. The vows don't actually mean anything. I would hope that's not how you view marriage, which is instated by God. And I hope it's not the way you'd view membership in the local church, which we believe was instated by God. That, that, that membership doesn't just describe doctrine, but culture. Ray Ortland, in his book uh, called The Gospel, he talks about how a truly healthy church has two parts, gospel doctrine and gospel culture. And he says this succinctly but powerfully, quote, when the doctrine is clear, and the culture is beautiful, that church will be powerful. And the connective tissue that connects doctrine and culture, I think is found in Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love. 
Paul segues from the point of saying um, that healthy believers in churches will be able to discern truth, but lived out in love. Here's where the world says you have to do one or the other. You either got to stand for truth or you have to be loving. So all truth with no love or you have to love and accept all without holding to any claims of truth. The, the world says you, you got to do one or the other. You can't do both. But the Bible says, no, there's a, there, there's a third way. In their book, Compassion and Conviction, Justin Gibney and Michael Ware say this, Quote, Jesus himself was full of grace and truth, just as the gospel requires us to be committed to both loving others, showing them grace and compassion, and standing up for biblical convictions and the truth of God's word. Paul's prophetic words dismantle the false choice and reveal the error in thinking we must choose one or the other. This is a both-and proposition, not either-or. The world separates the two. But the gospel transcends the false divide and shows that we must value both. Gospel culture is full of grace and truth. What we believe shapes the way we treat and prioritize one another. When the doctrine is clear and the culture is beautiful, the church is powerful. Lastly, number four, To know Jesus is to be disciples who make disciples. Verse 16, the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. When each member of the body is playing the part that God has gifted them to do so, the whole church grows into the fullness of Christ. The other way to say that is that when you have Christ-centered disciples who make disciples who make disciples, it's this input, it's this output, it's that everybody is being equipped and poured into and then being used to equip and pour into others. It's that when God works in you through others, he then works through you to reach others. This is the working mechanism of a healthy church body. That we don't just know what to say, but that we live it out. Author Will Mancini in his book Church Unique wrote this. It it stopped me in my tracks. He said, quote, You can teach what you know, but you only reproduce what you are. Sit on that one for a moment. You cannot multiply without modeling. Grace Church, we are one body formed by one Spirit who have one hope in one Lord with one faith united by one baptism under one God and Father of all. That is what we have been deemed. That is what God has made in us. That we are passive recipients of His grace in Jesus Christ just like we are in salvation. And when God saves us, we're passive in that. But then he actively allows us to work and and, and contribute and pursue our Christ-likeness. So too, as a church, we are passively formed by God in the Holy Spirit. And then we are actively called to respond 
to build one another up in the knowledge and love of Jesus Christ. Here's Paul's basic reasoning. Here's Ephesians 4. Hey, you're a Christian, so act like it. And to the church, hey, you are the body of Christ, so act like it. Because you can. Because you have the tools necessary. You have the gifts needed. God's given that to you. And so let us, by God's grace, not muddy the waters of what we're supposed to be doing here. Let's not get caught up in all kind of the minor issues and the clutter and the chaos. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. Glorify God by making disciples who know Jesus and make him known. And so as we reset in this season, can we ask ourselves individually and as a church, what do I need to strip away that is distracting me from that mission? And what, what do we need to kind of strip away and focus all the more on? To know Jesus and help others do so as well. To be Christ-centered in all we do, number one. To recognize and discern truth, number two. To speak the truth in love, number three. And to be disciples who make disciples. This is my prayer for Grace Church. That anybody who comes in would be able to recognize sooner rather than later that we are committed to the truth of God's word and that we love each other like family. That we have a deep love for the gospel, and yet we welcome anybody to encounter the love of Christ without judging them for their past or, or indicating that they wouldn't belong here. That we would understand how God has gifted us, and that we would submit to the leadership that God has placed over this church, while also every member seeing themselves as essential in the process of making disciples. I hope you view yourself that way, because it's true. And in this way, the church is blessed and a blessing. The church is loved and loving. The church is built up in order to play a part in building up the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you how it helps us to clear away the clutter, Lord, and we focus on what you have called us to. I pray that it would not only be clear in our minds, but that it would stir the affections in our hearts, Lord, primarily for you and for the glory of your name, and that as an outflow of that, that it would equip, motivate, and enable us to play our part well essential members of one body seeking to make disciples who know Jesus and make him known. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.